Verse number 24, let's pick up there. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for each person that's come out tonight, God, on Wednesday night to dive into the word of God. I thank you, Father, for those, um, those, that little discussion, we just impromptu discussion about um, this technology. And, and Father, some of the ways that, some of the tools and the scaffolding that, that are being um, set up in front of us for the Antichrist to use. And so, Lord, we pray, Father, as we study the book of Daniel, Lord, that, um, God, you would be blessed, and, Father, that we would grow and learn, and, uh, Father, that, that the information that's supposed to go forward would go forward, God, and that, Lord, you'd be with me tonight and be with us, Lord Jesus. Help us to, to hear and to see Jesus in every chapter and every page uh, and every verse of the Bible, that it's about Jesus and it's about our relationship with Jesus. And, Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, um, allow me one little more rabbit trail. Uh, I was sharing with my, my kids this week, the last two pastor's conferences, and one of the things I do when I go off to the pastor's conferences is I try to seek God and ask God to speak to me about an area of my life that I can focus on, that he wants me to, you know, to help me in. I'm looking for a, a nugget, a mountaintop experience. And so um, the last two years, um, God spoke to me the same thing as I sought him for some kind of, you know, Thing to take away from the pastor's conference personally, even apart from what the messages are and that. Sometimes God brings other things and many things through the messages and the experience, but in my quiet time and alone time. And, um, and, and, and the last few years, it was, it was an encouragement to me from the Lord to focus on the boys as, as they're growing. Luke is now a freshman, going to be a sophomore in college, and Nate will be a senior this year. Kate will be a junior in high school. And the feeling is you only got a couple years left with them, so you know, focus on spending some time and, and pouring into the boys while you still can. So um, I was telling Caleb yesterday, and I kind of had this conversation with each of them at a different time, but I, I was telling Caleb, I said, Caleb, I'm, I'm getting nervous, man. Like, you're, you're going to be graduating soon. And, you know, and I said, you've always grown up in church since the day you were born. You were in church. Um, you were a third kid, so your mom and I dropped you off in the nursery like five minutes after you were born, and we left you there. And like, you've always been in church, you've been a PK, you've heard all the sermons, youth group. Uh, and I said, but I, I just don't know if, and I said, and, and the thing we do in our house is I make the boys read their Bibles on their own. So that's our rule is that they're supposed to read like a chapter a day. And um, sometimes they do it, sometimes they don't. I got to remind them all the time. And in certain seasons they're I know they're keeping up and I'm checking on them and then I fall off and they're stopped doing it. We used to do a deal where they couldn't turn on their phones or their Xboxes or their TVs until they had read their Bible first. And that was a good motivation. So um, and like I said, some, sometimes it goes well, sometimes it doesn't. But, but as far as like sitting down as a family at home and me teaching them, now we have conversations and we're talking about God, but actually doing Bible studies at home, it's something that I, I just haven't been good at. And the seasons we've done it, and then as they got older, you know, we try to do a home Bible study, and it's like fighting. It's more fighting than it is teaching. You know, Listen, I pay attention in there. You know, and it's like, so it just kind of falls by the wayside. So anyways, I was telling Caleb. You know, I, I said, I don't know. Like, I said, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a contractor or a mechanic. And, you know, as a father, some dads pass on to their kids how to fix cars and how to build things and, you know, whatever they do. I said, as, as a pastor, I said, I haven't given you any of those things growing up. You know, I said, your experience is kind of like mine. Like, I grew up with a single mom, so I didn't get any of those things. But you had a dad. I don't know what your excuse is. But, but the one thing I should and can be able to pass on to you is the Bible. And I'm getting nervous there. So I said, we need to get back to teaching the Word. And I said, I want to get together with you guys in these last couple of years. And God's been speaking to me about it and do some more, like, in-depth Bible studies at home. And, uh, and then I asked him, I said, I said, you just got to answer one question. You know, if you can answer this question, I won't feel completely like I failed. 
and I asked him, what is Christianity? And so I've asked you guys that same question a bunch of times. I've given you the answer. Um, Anybody want to take a crack at it? Anybody else want to take a crack at it? Um, Well, I asked Caleb what I teach and what I have taught. And I said, what is Christianity? And Caleb said, a relationship with Jesus. And I said, oh, yes. (laughs) I said, all right, I'm okay. I thought you at least one thing stuck. Because if you understand that that really everything that we are as Christ followers, everything that we learn, do, and know, and knowledge is all focused on this one simple truth that it's all about Jesus and that through relationship with Jesus. Now, if I can teach my boys, I may not, you know, I may not have turned them into Bible scholars, but... If they know Jesus and they, they, know, they know where the bread comes from, then, then they can always eat. And, and in your life and in my life, it comes from relationship with Jesus. So if they lack knowledge leaving, you know, like Daniel. You know, Daniel's a young man, 15 years old, but he put his focus in Jesus and on Jesus. And through that, he, he had the knowledge when he needed it. He had the things that he needed. And so, you know, it's about Jesus and knowing Jesus and having Jesus in your life personally and having and focusing on the teaching that we do, the gathering that we do, the worshiping that we do, everything in our lives is to foster in you and in me a love for Jesus. Amen. And there's, again, there's nothing more that I can encourage you in. You know, you want to be a Bible scholar. If you focus on Jesus, then then in through your relationship and the time you spend with him and and the little decisions you start to make in your life that lead you in that direction that, that are supernatural. They're naturally supernatural. And then you find yourself in three years in a year in this place that, you know, is such a joy to you and such a blessing. And you're wondering, how did I get here? Like, I didn't have this intentional um, um, why in the road and I chose to go this way. But you just naturally spent time with Jesus through relationship. And then guess where you're going to be in a year, in five years? Exactly in the center of God's will and the gifting and the calling. Maybe there's other things in your life that you desire. You know, the Bible says that God gives you the desires of your heart. You know, and one of the tendencies, I think, especially when we're young or we're immature in our walk with Christ, is that we have this fear that if I, if I fully surrender my heart and life to Jesus, he's going to make me go to Africa and be a missionary in a dirt hut in Africa. And I don't like Africa, and I don't like the heat, and I don't like dirt. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to sell out to Jesus because then he's going to, you know, send me to Africa. I don't want to go to Africa. Listen. First of all, God is a good, good father. He's not going to do for you what, what you don't want. And what he says is that he's going to put the desire in your heart. So the desire that you have, it came from him in the first place. So if your desire is to be on a beach in Hawaii, he put that desire in your heart. You don't have to feel guilty for it. If your desire is not to be um, work with orphans in Africa, you don't have to feel guilty. Like if I was a better Christian, then shouldn't I want to be in Africa working with children, uh, orphan children? Well, if you, were, if you were supposed to be working in Africa with orphan children, God would have put that in your heart. So you can relax. You can relax in your walk with the Lord. And, and if you focus then not on where am I supposed to be in five years and what is God's will and what is God's call, but you focus instead on, God, what do you want me to do today? What do you want me to do today? You know, one of the things that's happened recently with Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City, 
Pastor Terry um, started this food ministry, and it started after COVID started. It was really just kind of organic. It wasn't something that, that he sought the Lord for. And I mean, not, not, that's not the right word. It's not something that he like inspired to be a community food bank and give away, you know, half a million food boxes in the last year and a half. And I asked him, so, but I mean, the, the fruit that came from that ministry, their church exploded, number one. The, the amount of people that they reached in their community, and then they became a hub, and they were giving away thousands of boxes to any church, competing churches, different denominations. It didn't matter. He was giving, he was supplying all the churches from North Ogden to Provo with food boxes a couple times a week. And, and amazing, amazing, amazing fruit that came out of this, this ministry. So I asked Pastor Terry, I said, Terry, how, how did you get into this? How did it happen? And he just said, I just got up and I just asked God, it's COVID and church was closed and things were happening. And, I, and he said, I just get up in the morning and I say, God, what am I supposed to do today? And he said, as a result, God led in this direction and um, opened the doors and was kind of naturally supernatural, but just started with saying, God, what am I supposed to do? What do you want me to do? What am I supposed to be doing? Lord, what am I supposed to do today? What am I supposed to do today? You know, and oftentimes when you do that, the Lord says, yeah, 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 we'll get to that in a minute. But first, let me give you some of my love. Let me give you some of my love. You're like, okay, Lord, well, I'm ready to work. What am I supposed to do today? All right, we'll get to the business later. But first, let me give you some of my love. <laughs> and he just, that's what he does. All right. Verse number 24, Daniel chapter 2. It says, therefore, Daniel, you guys know where we are in the scene. Um, I, I'll go ahead and set it up really quickly. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He goes to the, the, the magicians, the astrologers, the soothsayers, this list of different kind of diviners that you and I really can't tell the difference between what is what, but it's all these people of the world and all these different ways um, that the world um, uses to divine the will of God and to divine the future. And, and everybody has a different tactic from a tarot card to reading the stars to throwing bones on the ground to chicken bones to some seance with, with rat hair and chicken blood and the knuckle bones of a of a woman or something, whatever their recipe is, and all of these different groups. And Nebuchadnezzar comes to them and he says, I have a dream and I want you to tell me the interpretation of the dream. And they say, okay, tell us what you dreamed and we'll give you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar, being the wise king that he is, understands that these guys are phonies. And if he tells them what the dream was and they, they tell him what the interpretation is, he will have no way of knowing whether that's true or not. Because they'll make it up. And whether they nail it and they get it right or they get it wrong, how will he know? And so he says, I'm not going to tell you what I dreamt. You're going to tell me what my dream was and what it meant. And he says, if you don't, I'm going to kill you and cut your body into pieces because Neb has an anger problem. Now, I don't know why that would scare me any more than killing me. After I'm dead, you could do whatever you want to my body. But I think he thought it would be worse to tell them that he was going to kill them and then cut their body into little pieces. And, and, they, and they actually began because none of them could do it. And then Daniel gets involved. And that's where we are in verse 24. He goes to, um, it says in verse 19 that he began, or I'm sorry, 18, to, that he might seek the mercies from God. He gathers his friends. He tells them to pray. And then God reveals to Daniel what the dream of Nebuchadnezzar was. And that brings us to verse 24. And Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. And he went out and said to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. 
take me before the king, and I will tell the king its interpretation. Now, um, number one, this is a surrender of Daniel's heart and life to God. Number two, it's bold. You know, Paul says in, in one of the epistles, he says, pray for me that I might have the boldness to preach the gospel. And so if it's good enough for Paul to pray for, it's definitely good enough for you and I to pray for, that God would give us boldness when we need it, and boldness specifically to preach the gospel. Now, now Daniel went, but he didn't tell um, Nebuchadnezzar the dream or the interpretation. And so there's a chance that maybe he lays this all out, and Nebuchadnezzar goes, no, you're way off. That's not what I dreamed. And that's, but he still comes with this boldness and this confidence in the Lord. And then to get to that point, he had to surrender to God. And then we're going to come to the but God verse in this chapter that we mentioned last week that is so powerful. It's a Bible truth all the way through. And it says in verse 25, Then Ariok quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him, I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. So this guy wants a little bit of credit. I have found I found a guy in your kingdom. I guess we all might do that in our situation and, you know, try to take a little piece of the credit. He didn't find Daniel. Daniel came to him, but he goes to the king and he says, Oh, king, I have found someone to handle your problem. And the king answered, verse 26, and said to Daniel, Whose name was Belteshazzar? That's his, what? What name is that? That's his Babylonian name. That's okay. I got another one. Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? And then Daniel, in the presence of the king, and said, The secret which the king has determined, the wise men, astrologers, magicians, soothsayers, they cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven. Oh, somebody say amen. But there is a God in heaven. Now, Again, in your life and my life, one of the most encouraging things that you can hear is but God. Now, now there's multiple examples of that. I think um, I didn't look it up, but I heard a pastor say 31 times this idea. And in here, we don't have those two words put together. It says, but there is a God. So those also qualify in that 31. But this concept of but God showing up in your life, so powerful. In Ephesians, we get the, probably the most um, well-known but God. And it says, you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of power or the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all, capital A-L-L, once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling desires of the flesh, of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. Verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And then in Titus, we, we studied another but God on Sunday, just coincidentally enough. And this one says the same thing in Ephesians 2. He says, for we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of our God and Savior toward man appeared, everything changed. And so Daniel says, nobody can, but there's a God in heaven. Listen, there's a God in heaven who can change your circumstance. There's a God in heaven who, who can heal your marriage. There's a God in heaven who can bring your prodigal children back to you. There's a God in heaven who can find you a new job. 
There's a God in heaven who, who can heal your current situation. There's a God in heaven who moves mountains. And Daniel says to him, but God, but God in heaven will reveal the secrets. Now, again, Daniel is very bold, but very humble. Okay, because Daniel does not take the credit for himself. People don't like this. I get it, but deal with it. God is a glory hog. You will not and God will not share his glory with anyone. That's consistent all through the Bible. And you and I would do well to not ever try to take the glory of God. Now, Christians abuse this, uh, this concept, and it gets really annoying. And you tell your Christian buddy, hey, nice hat, man. Oh, man, well, the Lord, his credit, not mine. God gave me the ability to buy this hat. Shut up. Just say thank you. You know, you, you can, you know, you ever know that guy that's like, you can't even like tell him anything because he wants to kind of in false humility, oh, God, you know, like, the, the idea is right. We want to be careful that we don't take God's glory. God is a glory hog. He doesn't share it with anybody. And if God does something, we want to give him the credit. We want to give him the glory. God's good. Yeah, God bless. God is good. Um, and, and so Daniel here wisely doesn't try to take the credit. You know, Jesus said, um, let your light so shine before men that when they see it, when they see your good deeds, they glorify your father who is in heaven. Now, I I think that verse has two parts and I like it because the first part of it says, again, with that false humility that people have, like we never can do anything for the Lord out in the open or in public. No, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, let your light so shine. In order to, be, to, to even fulfill the second half of that verse, you have to be able to fulfill the first half, which is being a person who's letting your light shine in front of people. Let your light so shine. So go do something amazing for God. Go let God use you in an amazing way in front of people. And be bold in, in your witness and in your, in your testimony for Jesus. But do it in such a way, the qualifier, is that when, when people recognize it, that they don't give you glory or praise you, that they praise your Father in heaven. And if they do point it towards you, then you just redirect them towards God. And that's what Daniel does. But there's a God in heaven who reveals secret and has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the... Everybody read that verse for me in 28. What will be in the latter days? Okay, this term is used in your Bible, the same exact term, same word, but read a couple different ways. Here it says latter days. Another way it's read or we think of it is called the end times. Okay, so latter days, the end times, it's all the same word concept in the Bible. And so I will tell you the things that will take place in the latter days or in the end times. Now, biblically, the end times starts with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we've been in the end times for 2000 years. I get it. So for 2,000 years, men on planet Earth, including the apostles, believed they were in the last days or the end times. So the latter days, the last days, the end times, all synonymous. Okay. So this, this we are in now, if we've been in the last days for 2,000 years, how much more are we closer to the return of Jesus Christ today? But what's, what's important about this fulfillment of this prophecy is that it's going to go all the way until where we are today as, as we get to it. 
um, what, in verse 28, your dreams and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. Now, this is extra info. Nebuchadnezzar didn't even ask for this. He just wanted to know what his dream was and what it meant. And Daniel's even able to tell him by the power of the Holy Spirit what he was thinking. I mean, he's, he's beginning to blow Nebuchadnezzar's mind at this point, I'm sure. Because now he's even giving him insight into what, like, what he was kind of going through his mind as this, this whole thing was happening. About what would come to pass after this. Again, that term after this, Revelation 4, after these things, metatauta. Um, in, in, the, in the Greek, I'm not sure what it is, how you say it in the Hebrew, um, and this is actually in Aramaic anyways. This chapter is written in Aramaic. Um, but again, it's a concept after these things or in the last days after this. Um, but as about what would come to pass after this and he would reveal secrets ha- has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me. Everybody say not. Not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. It's not been revealed to me because I'm just the smartest Christian that's ever lived. It's not been revealed to me because I'm more spiritual than everybody else. Why did God choose Daniel and not everybody else? And what if God chose you in this situation? The only person in Babylon, in the known world, the power of the known world, that had this key. Again, the tendency, and God chooses to use individuals that when they get to this situation, he knows they're going to do the right thing. And, and, and maybe somebody would just really fail in this situation. And, and, and not even publicly, but just internally as a child of God. Because one of the things you'd have to war in this situation, if God uses you, and God begins to use you in a mighty way, that you don't start to feel like, well, I can see why God uses me and not you. I'm way more spiritual than you are. I don't even watch Friends. That makes me more spiritual than you other Christians. You know, like, that that's a tendency. It's, it's legalism. It's self-righteousness. It's puke. It's the reason why, you know, people don't like Christians. It's just Christians like that. And, and so we, we just want to be careful. And Daniel here nails it, man. It's not because I'm, it's not because of that. And he's humble and he's, he's sincere in his humility. It's not that fake hum, humility that I always talk about. Verse 30, but as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living, but for our sakes, and again, our, it's it's the people in Daniel's life, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's even talking about the um, soothsayers and the astrologers and magicians. And and do you realize that that we we talked about last week that Daniel would have been in a a covenant with these people and, and in school with them. And even though he was polar opposite as a believer, he would have spent a lot of time with them. And, and some of them would be his enemy and hate him because of who he was and what he stood. And whether these people hated him or liked him or got along with him, they, they were open about the fact that they didn't agree on the way that, that this kind of this class of people should, should behave. But nonetheless, Daniel loved these people. And Daniel did care. And Daniel, in his heart here, you see where he, you know, naturally we're the type, these type of people that even somebody who's totally polar opposite, an atheist and hates your Christian view and, you know, says things about you. And, but yet maybe you're in a situation where you have to be around this person every day. And even though they, they, 
make fun of you as a Christ follower, in your heart you still have compassion because you, they're going to die and go to hell, and that's more important. And if they became a believer in Jesus, they'd probably become one of your best friends. Now, now this same group, what's fascinating about this group is that when the three wise men come and bring gifts to Jesus, when he's about two years old, by the way, not in the manger. The wise men don't show up in the manger. Don't show up until he's in a house two years later. They came from Babylon. It's very possible that within this group, because Daniel's going to be put over the charge of this group, that, that you know, not only the book of Daniel, but the other things in an 80-year career that Daniel had in Babylon, that he trained these guys, that he wrote things, that they used um, to find Jesus years later. That his writings were passed down and that that wisdom was passed down to these wise men that came from the east. And, and, and I believe very, very practically and possibly they came from um, Babylon. Then Daniel was able to train them and, and write things that they later, because it would have been a lot of years later, would have 600 years later, would have been able to use. And, and then other parts of this group, they're going to hate Daniel. When, when Nebuchadnezzar dies and his son takes over and, and the Medo-Persians show up and sack Babylon, the new king of Medo-Persia, these same men go to the new king and they say, King, well, let's make a law that when, when the music plays, everybody has to bow down and worship you. No, that's a different one. When um, nobody can pray to any god but you. And King Darius says, oh, I like that. And they write it into uh, Medo-Persian law. And then, and then he finds out that, they're, that he liked Daniel. He finds out it's a trap, but he, can't, he doesn't have the power that Nebuchadnezzar has, so he can't change because once it becomes into law, the king of the Medo-Persians didn't have the power like Babylon King Nebuchadnezzar did. Nebuchadnezzar could have done anything he wanted to do. Well, this guy's stuck, and so as a result, they throw Daniel. That's why Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. And then this, so those, this out of this same group, some of them eventually go to uh, Jerusalem and find Jesus, or Bethlehem, or wherever he was. <laughs> and others try to kill him later, and, 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 and yet he loves this group. So this kind of collected group of folks that, that Daniel would have been forced to be a part of their lives. Verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This is the uh, first the dream, then the interpretation. Behold, a great image. This image whose splendor was excellent stood before you, and its form was awesome. And this image, his head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out with hands, cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Mountain in, in the Bible is a term that means kingdoms. Okay? They built a, a kingdom. So, this is probably, a, this is an artist's rendition, probably very um, accurate. Uh, maybe not the way the head was, but anyways, the statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. Um, later, Nebuchadnezzar is going to erect the statue that as a result, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to be thrown into the fiery furnace because of the statue that Nebuchadnezzar um, is going to um, erect, probably as a result, definitely as a result of his pride, because he makes it all. Um, when you understand the interpretation of what this dream meant, 
You'll kind of see why Nebuchadnezzar made an all-gold statue and then demanded that everybody bow down to it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused. That statue is also um, artist rendition depicted kind of looking this same way, but it's all gold. So this was what he saw in his dream. This is how Daniel um, interpreted head of gold, um, arms and um, chest of silver, uh, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, feet of partly iron and partly clay. And what does it all mean? Well, here's the interpretation. This is the dream. Now we will... Now again, one of the um, danger words in the Bible when you see these kind of depictions is the word I. I will and I will and I and this and I and I have. and you know. But Daniel doesn't use that term. And he clearly could have. I will now show you. What does he say? He says we. And again, that's a sign that he's not being full of pride. Um, he's, not so, he's not caught up in this moment. And he says we will tell the interpretation of it before the king. Um, the, the interpretation of this dream is basically going to be um, five kingdoms through human history. Now, now, basically, in a nutshell, the head of gold is um, a Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian um, Babylonian kingdom and Babylonian. Babylon was um, arguably the greatest kingdom in human history of what they, as far as how they built Babylon and what they did. I told you a little bit of the stats. I bumped through them the other couple of weeks ago about um, the, the, the really the splendor and the phenomenon of Babylon. The walls, um, 300 feet high, and were wide enough that six chariots could, could have chariot races around the wall um, on top of the wall. Nebuchadnezzar's wife loved mountains, and they were, he moved her to a desert. And so in order to build a mountain for his wife, he built gardens uh, 30 stories high that were known as the Hanging Gardens, and they were to give the appearance of a mountain. They were one of the uh, wonders of the world, the Hanging Gardens in uh, Babylon. So much gold in Babylon that it could not even be counted or measured. It was so abundant in gold in Babylon. And so the splendor of the city of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar being really a god king um, with nothing above him is the head of gold. Well, he's going to be, he's actually going to die. Then his son is going to take over and his son is going to be um, captured by the Medo-Persian Empire. And that's recorded in Daniel. Um, we'll get that in chapter 6. And then the Medo-Persian Empire is going to be um, conquered by Alexander the Great and the Grecian Empire. We have the years there. And then the legs of iron is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the largest and the longest lasting empire of all these empires. And that brings us all the way to about 500 years after Christ. So from 600 years before Christ to 500 years after Christ, about 1,100 years of human history. And Daniel says exactly what's going to happen. Now there's a pause from um, 500, not really a pause, but from 476 or 500 to today, or the return of Christ, is represented by the feet. Now, there's never been, since Rome's um, decline, uh, a nation like any of these, Babylon, Medo-Persian, Greece, that, that have conquered the entire Rome, that have conquered the known world. Since then, we've had now 
Um, you know, we've had Hitlers and we've had Stalins and Mussolinis and Napoleons and different people, but no, um, never again has there been a world dominating power since Rome. And so, and it won't happen again. It'll actually be the 10 toes. We are people of the toes, you and I. So when you tell your non-Christian friend that you're a, you're people of the toes, they think you're crazy. We are in this prophecy, the people of the toes, because that's where we live and the toes will be and the ten toes will represent the kingdom of Antichrist and where we live. And so um, we'll, we'll pick that back up here in a second. So verse 37 says, You, O king, are a king of kings, for the God of heaven has given you a kingdom, power, strength, and glory. Who gave Nebuchadnezzar the kingdom? The God of heaven. Nebuchadnezzar is going to learn this the hard way. He's going to kind of get it. Pride's going to get in the way. He's not going to get it. He's going to get it. He's going to kind of get it. He's going to struggle with this until God finally humbles him. Um, so we'll see that. But God is going to prove to Nebuchadnezzar that he is the God who raises up kings and tears kings down. You know, one of the things in our faith today is that we don't, as Christians, really worry about and lose too much sleep over who's in the White House. We vote. We have an opinion. But when, when our guy doesn't get in or it doesn't go the way we think it does, we don't tend to lose a ton of sleep because we know that God is the one who raises up kings and tears kings down and that ultimately Jesus is still on the throne and we read the last, the last book and God wins in the end anyways. And so we, we don't really have to you know, be so caught up in politics that, that, that it causes us anxiety and stress. And, you know, we're, we're involved in those things because it, it results in, you know, moral or immoral um, laws and behaviors here in our land. So it's important to us. But at the end of the day, we don't lose too much sleep over it, or I don't anyways. Um, and then in verse 38, And wherever the children of men dwell, the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven... He has, everybody say, he has, capital H, given them into your hand and has made you ruler over them. You are this head of gold. So Nebuchadnezzar, you are in the statue, this head of gold. And then now we're going to have these successive metals um, that, that are, that are going to decrease in value um, and in strength. And so the next one, verse 39, but after you shall arise another kingdom inferior to yours. And so this kingdom that took over and, and, and defeated the Babylonians was under King Darius, the Medo-Persian Empire. Now, the Medo-Persian Empire was not as, not as strong as the head of gold and Nebuchadnezzar. They were a constitutional monarchy again, where the king had power as a monarch until it was written into the Medo-Persian law. And then the Medo-Persian law superseded or had more power than the king. So that's how King Darius is going to get trapped into throwing Daniel into the lion's den later is because he lets it go into, it's his decree, and he lets it, and it makes him a god, and it makes him worship, but he writes it in the Medo-Persian law. And once it was written in the Medo-Persian law, it trumps him. Now, again, Nebuchadnezzar didn't have those kind of barriers because he was a different kind of king. It was an absolute monarch, and he could have wrote it or changed it or done whatever he want off with your head. He, he, he had total power. So the Medo-Persians reigned um, um, under several different kings. Um, the, the Artaxerxes of, 
uh, of history is in this Medo-Persian kingdom. Part of it is um, myth and part of it is reality. The, the movie 300, how many seen that? With, with, uh, where Artaxerxes is the, the Persian king that um, is in there and he's this god king and he's whatever. Like Most of that is myth. But there is Artaxerxes from the Medo-Persian Empire that's listed in the Bible, Artaxerxes Longimanus. And Artaxerxes is the king who told Nehemiah that he could go back to Jerusalem and begin to build the walls. You can read that in the book of Nehemiah, this, this Persian king. Now, Persia, if you guys um, just kind of parenthetically here, actually, apart from this, but um, today it's called Iran. And most of us probably grew up... Um, seeing it in, on a map as Iran. But that, that country forever was called Persia. And, and the thing about the Persians is they're, they're, they're not Arab. And so if you talk to somebody from Iranian, Iran and you say, you know, you're, you're Arab, they'll say, no, we're Persian. You know, I grew up uh, very multicultural where I grew up and learned very quickly, you know, somebody's Latin and they speak Spanish and you say to him, are you Mexican? I'm Mexican, man. I'm from Guatemala. There's a big difference. You know what I mean? It was Latin. They were all Latin, you know. But no, there's a huge difference. And they, they take pride that they're not Mexican. They're not from Mexico. And so the Persians and most of the Middle East will identify as Arab and are okay being lumped in together. But um, the Iran was called Persia. And I don't know when it changed to Iran. But now it's Iran. But that's where the Persians hail from. And this Persian Empire um, that, that reigned under Darius and then Xerxes. And then it says in the same verse, we have two of them listed in 39. It says, then another, a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over where? So this third kingdom will rule all the earth. So the next kingdom that took over historically was the Grecian army led by Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great conquered the known world. This verse, um, um, prophecy fulfilled exactly the way Daniel laid it out. So detailed and so accurate is why Daniel takes so much scrutiny. It's why the, the critics of the Bible will not believe or admit that Daniel wrote this prophecy when he did because it was absolutely so accurate, exactly fulfilled that there's no way he could have predicted 1,100 years of successive kingdoms and, and rulers as he did. Um, the, Alexander the Great is mentioned by name in prophecy in Isaiah. And, and so again, the critics say there's no way that could happen. For you and I, it's one of the areas that we need to hold on to as a nugget because of the prophecies of the Bible as they've been already fulfilled so accurately and so perfectly, we can look at the prophecies that we're looking at today that are yet future without any doubts. They're going to be fulfilled exactly the way the Bible says them. The Bible says in Isaiah 17:1 that Damascus, Syria will no longer be um, an inhabitable city, that it will be destroyed. And, and parts of Damascus are already that way. I showed in one of my prophecy updates a couple of years ago a picture of Holmes, Syria, H-O-M-S. Is that how you pronounce it? Holmes, Syria. Holmes, Syria was a thriving city that looked like Tokyo 10 years ago. Lights and cars and streets and high rises and buildings and activity. And, 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 and today, it looks like something out of antiquity, something that you'd visit in the, um, 
on a, on a tour of the Holy Land of some ruin. And you think, oh, this has been a ruin for thousands of years. No, it's been a ruin for like four years. But it is absolutely, completely destroyed and uninhabitable. Right there, in, and it's one of the larger cities in the, in the country of Syria. And Damascus is next. It will happen. We can know that's going to happen. Jesus said he's coming again. We know that can happen. We know that's going to happen. So again, we see these prophecies fulfilled exactly. Alexander the Great, at 33 years old, had fulfilled this verse and conquered the known world. Alexander the Great's story is that at 33 years old, he, was, he went into a depression, and he's famous for saying these words. There's no other worlds left to conquer. And, 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 and in his um, camp, he was, he was an amazing strategist and war leader and, and general. And he literally conquered the known world. And there was nowhere left to fight. There was not another army on planet Earth that he could go and fight. And he began to drink real heavily in his depression because there was nothing left to conquer. And he went out in a rainstorm and caught pneumonia and died at 33 years old. Jesus also died at 33. But that was the story of um, a one little kind of side note about um, Alexander the Great that I think is pretty fascinating is that um, when, when he got to Jerusalem, to, to sack Jerusalem, um, a, a, a priest had come to Alexander the Great and showed him a copy of the scroll of Isaiah that his name was written in, that his prophecy was written in. And he found it so fascinating that he was written into Bible prophecy that he spared the city of Jerusalem and didn't sack it. So that's, that's a little cool tidbit about Alexander the Great. And then it says in verse 30, 40, And the fourth kingdom shall be as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron breaks in pieces and shatters everything, and like iron that crushes that kingdom will break in, in pieces and crush all, uh, all the others. So, um, so that, la- that kingdom was the um, Roman kingdom. The Romans took power at, in 168, 168 um, years before Christ was born. They were in power during um, the life of Jesus. And then Rome lasted and finally collapsed in 476. Now that's a long time. They say that empires um, usually last about 200 years. The United States is a little over 200 years old. And we're starting to implode. And, and one of the most fascinating studies, if you can do it, I, was, I had a little highlights from it today. I'm not going to have time to go into them, but you, you, they, they've identified some of the things that were the collapse of Rome. And, and how did Rome collapse? Rome was never defeated. No, no armies, no, no people ever came in and, and defeated Rome. Rome was defeated by itself from within. And I believe the same thing could and will happen in the United States apart from the fact that what's going to happen to the United States ultimately is going to be Bible prophecy. But had if we were going to continue we would end up and we wouldn't make the 700 years 600 years that Rome made it in the early days of Rome Rome bragged that they had not one divorce in Rome or not one and then and then they had so many slaves in Rome by the later years that there were six slaves to every Roman citizen and Roman citizenship was um, highly touted and very important and 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 you know Paul remember Paul's story the apostle Paul and the guy says, he was a Roman citizen. He was a Jew of the Jew, a Pharisee of the Pharisees. And the guy says to him, man, how did you get your Roman citizen? I, ship, I, I worked my whole life to get mine. And Paul says, I was born into it. And, and a Roman citizen, in order to fight in the Roman army, had to be a Roman citizen and own land and have vested, be vested in Rome. 
And one of the reasons why when the Roman soldiers fought, they fought for something in a homeland and they believed it and they had a national pride that made them um, um, vicious on the, on the battlefield. Later in Rome's history, Rome began to enlist slaves into their army and let the slaves fight. And some of the things that the Roman army had to do, the slaves, when they were out there, they didn't have the same vested interest that the early Roman conquerors and armies had. And then they became weak and their armies became weaker. Divorce became so prevalent in Rome. After bragging, they had not one divorce in in Rome, that divorce and um, immorality, homosexuality, aberrant sexual behavior became such a norm in, um, in Rome. And, and you look at the decline of Rome and how they collapsed, and, and it, you could lay a United States right over the top, and we're headed the same direction. You know, little different tweaks, little different details, but same idea how you decline a civilization. They destroyed, the home was destroyed, marriages were destroyed, aberrant sexual behavior, and, and eventually it led to the decline and the imploding of Rome. And then again, from 476 to today, the, the feet, which represent the feet, there's never been another um, conquering nation on planet Earth. And then at 41, it says, whereas you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, the kingdom shall be divided, yet the strength of iron shall be in it, as you saw the iron mixed with ceramic clay, and the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly fragile. The word fragile there means brittle. So this is um, the the ten toes are um, the fulfillment of the prophecy that the Antichrist will rise out of. It's this kingdom that Antichrist will rise out of. Forever in biblical prophecy because there's ten toes. And this, this Roman Empire. Now, a couple things to know about the Roman Empire. Number one, there's two legs on the Roman Empire. And when you think of, and, and we think of Europe, that's kind of the term we use. So the feet, the term that we use in biblical prophecy that you hear a ton, is the revived Roman Empire. Have you guys heard that term? The revived Roman Empire. So the legs were the Roman Empire. The feet are the revived Roman Empire. Because partly of iron and partly of clay. The legs were of iron. The feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And there's ten toes. But the Roman Empire, when we think of it being Europe or the EU, the European Union, that will represent the the final power in the last days, the days of Antichrist, we've always thought of Western Europe. But um, we, we don't want to forget that to include who Rome was and who Europe is, Europe also has an Eastern part of, of, of Europe, that Turkey and Iran and um, Afghanistan and Pakistan, all those are in Europe. And so there's an Eastern and a Western um, kingdom of Europe to this day. So, you know, one of the things when I was in Bible college, actually Lydia and I had started dating. So it was second year Bible college and uh, we wanted to be together more. And she, so I talked her into taking, we took evening classes so we took a class together. You remember what class we took together? It was Daniel, wasn't it? Was Zechariah? And it was a prophecy book. Yeah. So we took um, um, that same teacher, Danny Shoemate, who taught Zechariah, also taught Daniel. Um, but I think it was, I don't know if it was Danny Zechariah. I thought it was Daniel. But anyways, um, I only cared about one thing in life during those days. And that's that Lydia didn't get a better grade than me in that class. Still disappointed to this day. It was close, but she beat me. Um, 
But Daniel, who was our prophecy teacher, I'm sorry, Danny Shoemate, who taught these classes, taught our prophecy classes, um, he, he presented out of this chapter trying to identify who will be this kingdom that Antichrist will come from, number one, and who will be the ruling power. And so at, in those days, there was a, a, a revived like European Union called the EU. And the EU had um, ten nations. And so everybody was so excited. The ten toes were waiting for it to be ten nations. And all of a sudden, this, this, this thing that the Bible said thousands of years ago would happen is starting to gather. And now the European Union has ten nations. And this is it. And Well, then the ten nations became twelve. And then 14, and today like 20, and under different names. And um, so, you know, it was, it, and it, it was always okay. Like, it's, it's fascinating to do those things. It's fascinating to take the geopolitical atmosphere and Bible prophecy and try to see how they line up. Just as long as we don't make the mistake that some folks make, is that we try to change the way we understand or read the Bible to fit the geopolitical landscape. As long as we understand that if the Bible doesn't fit the geopolitical landscape, that the Bible's not going to change, the geopolitical landscape will change. And so, but even to this day, we, we try to figure out who is this revived Roman Empire that, the, that it's going to come out of. Now, that was popular um, back in uh, 1998 when I was in Bible college and, and taking that class in the European Union. And then I remember about five, ten years ago, um, Islam was just completely exploding and, and we were looking now at the possibilities of um, it being the, the eastern leg of the revived Roman Empire and being coming out of the Middle East, which made a lot more sense because they were such a natural enemy to the United States and to Israel. And so, you know, again, just trying to play with the pieces and see how they fit. And as long as we don't change what the Bible says, we know those pieces eventually will all fit into place. But I'll tell you, um, you know, the United States is not listed in Bible prophecy, not clearly. There are some places where you can, you know, possibly make it here or there, a couple arguments biblically, where the United States at one point in Ezekiel, they're like a looker on, and, and they come to Israel and say, well, what's going on, asking questions, but doesn't do anything. Possibly that's the United States. Another place, but, you know, countries that are going to be end times players are listed very clearly in the United States. You don't have to like, you know, do be a Bible magician and scholar to figure out who these countries are. They're listed very clearly. And, and so yet the United States is not listed now. And the other thing is that um, for the Antichrist to rise to power and all of these things, that video that I showed you before, everything that's happening before your very eyes is all stead- setting the stage for this coming rule of the Antichrist. I want to encourage you guys and remind you, please, I like to do prophecy and talk about prophecy, but it's never supposed to make us afraid as believers. We don't have to be afraid of anything. God is going to take care of us. You're not appointed to wrath. That the bride of Christ is going to be protected and taken up. And so, um, you know, again, none, none of these things are ominous, but they are all setting the stage for where the Antichrist, but you know, who's going to be the Antichrist? Where is he going to come from? Well, he's going to come from the revised Roman Empire. That's a pretty big area of the world now. But he'll come from the revised Roman Empire. The Bible's clear. Who will he be? Who cares? He won't be here anyways. And again, I don't even think Satan knows to some extent who it's going to be. 
because Satan doesn't know the future and Satan doesn't know when Jesus is coming back. And Satan has to have somebody in the wing ready so that if the rapture happened tonight, Satan could put his plan in motion. I've said before, Satan probably has to have, through history, multiple candidates at the ready at all times. I believe Hitler was an antichrist type that Satan had prepared and was ready at any moment had Jesus come back. And throughout history, there's been these types of antichrist. In verse 43, it says, As you saw iron mixed with ceramic clay, they will mingle with the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in these days of the of these kings, the God of heaven, everybody say the God of heaven, will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. Say never. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone, who's the stone? The stone is usually representative of Jesus. And here we have this stone that's going to crush the others, that the Antichrist, this ten nations will rise up, and then, and then Jesus will crush them. What's going to happen? The Antichrist is finally going to rise into power. This global agenda is going to um, finally take root. It's finally going to grow. It's finally going to accomplish what it's been trying to accomplish since Genesis chapter 11. Now, this globalist agenda, as, as you and I know, for so many years now, has, has really been on hold, and, and it's lacked so many things. I'm going to close with this. I really am. But um, I want to show you guys something that's really important in, in considering the last days. Hey, turn with me, if you will, in Daniel to chapter 12. Listen, this is one of the keys to um, Bible prophecy timing. Now, this New World Order, that, that was popular a few years ago. I just, I just showed you guys in our last prophecy update the new term, today's, today's vernacular, that, that is thrown out there is called the Great Reset. Okay? But again, when I was in Bible college, there was a real organization called the New World Order, the NWO. And as Christians, it was always a buzzword and a, oh no, the NWO, the New World Order. But they weren't hiding it, they were out there. Well, it's the same thing today, it's the same type of organization. They've always existed. The mindset has always existed. In 1910, um, the Federal Reserve Act and that group, the Rockefeller, Rothschilds, and the um, Vanderbilts and this group were trying to pass the Federal Reserve Act. Now, the Federal Reserve Act is not federal. They didn't get it passed until 1913, but this was the beginning, and it led into this. And um, all these all these organizations... Um, organizing around the world with different um, groups and powers and banks, and it's all about the money, the Bilderberg Group, the Illuminati, the, 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 all these things that were are well-known and, and behind the scenes, all a part of the New World Order, all a part of the Great Reset, all a part of setting the stage of what Satan is going to use um, in the Antichrist that's happening all around us. You know, even the Bill Gates, George Soros, um, um, Oprah Winfrey's of, of, of here and what we know are all a part of this agenda. And they are going to um, finally, and they've been trying, you guys, forever. But in 1910 is when it kind of was reborn again um, around the world. And part of it was because of technology. 
And um, for so many years, he didn't, you know, in, in 1700, there was plenty of cases and people who would live their entire lives from birth to death and never travel more than 10 miles from the house they were born in. It was normal. And, and, um, but in the last days, that term last days, something is going to happen, Daniel tells us, that's going to change all that. Now, look, look at what Daniel said, chapter 12, verse 4. And we are done with this. We're going we're gonna to do worship, you guys, at the end. So i got to stop so I can worship some, some time to um, sing. But look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Same term. I already went over this. The last days, latter days, end times. Same idea. Until the end times. And then here's the key. In the end times, many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. You want, you want something that preaches, man, that little thing preaches. You could make entire weeks of study out of to and fro and knowledge will increase. So what will be one of the signs of the end times or the latter days is that men will travel to and fro. In, in the year um, Babylon or in the year that Rome declined was 476 A.D. If you, after Christ, if you lived 500 years after Christ in central China and you wanted to go to Kansas... What, what would you do? You could get there in 500. Well, first you would travel either by foot or horseback from central China to a coast somewhere, right? And how long would it take you to get from central China to a coast? Who knows, right? Terrain, roads, weeks, months, years. Then, then you would get on a boat and you would take a boat to um, New York or L.A., and then, and then you would get back on foot or horseback or donkey or camel, and you would travel to Kansas. And so from central um, China to Kansas could take you months, years, a lifetime to travel that distance. Today, you can get on an airplane. Tonight, I can be in central Kansas. Um, and, and, or tonight, I could be in China, central China. And in the morning, I could be back in central, China, central Kansas. Men will travel to and fro. And today we, we travel around the world. Now, that was 500 years after Christ. How long did that last? What about in 1901? 1,400 years later. In 1901, nothing changed. Not a thing. It wasn't until the Wright brothers, right, and until we started flying and automobiles and fast boats and engines and steam motors and and all of these things. Well, now, today, we think nothing of it. Last month, I was in Dubai and Uganda in the same day. You know, and so are we living in the fulfillment of this prophecy? And this prophecy says the last days. And the other thing it says, that knowledge will increase. Okay? And i got to end on that. Worship team, come on up. Hey, are we living in a day where knowledge is exponentially increased? Yeah. When was the computer invented? Or when did uh, Al Gore invent the Internet? The first, the first computer that NASA had, there was, the, there was basically a calculator to compute numbers. It was like in the 60s. But it was, um, it was in a room this size. 
and towers that were six feet tall and three feet wide that ran the length of the room, seven of them. That was what it took. This right here, thousands of times more powerful than what NASA had in the 60s. We're living in days when knowledge will increase. And knowledge is exponential. So the way that it increases exponentially is, is you can't even do the math on it. You know, if you take one grain of rice and you add and you put it on a checkerboard, and in the second checkerboard you double it and put two grains of rice, that's exponential math. And on the third um, checkerboard piece, you, you double it and you put four grains of rice, one, two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, right? By the time you get like halfway through the checkered board, there wouldn't be enough rice in all of India to fill that, that piece of the, of the square because of exponential math. And, and technology is the same way. You know, nowadays computers are what? What's the storage on a computer today? Common to have like a terabyte. That's normal. All right, enough talk. Hey, let's stand. We'll just kind of, uh, we'll try to hit chapter three next week, finish up the reading. I kind of covered the material. Um, what I probably will cover next week is um, Nebuchadnezzar's response to the, to the, the prophecy, but uh, just good stuff. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day, God. Father, we thank you for your word of God and for the, the spirit of prophecy, Lord, that tells the end from the beginning and the future, Lord Jesus. And so, Father, we pray that the the spirit of prophecy would encourage us as we study through Daniel, that we can trust what the Bible says is yet future about our personal lives, about the return of Jesus. I pray, Father, that each one of us would believe it enough that we would make changes in our lives. Lord, I thank you for those that, Lord, have stopped drinking or stopped doing certain things in their life, just believing that Jesus could come back at any day. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, that um, as we study the, the book of Daniel and as we study prophecy, that it would encourage us, that it would deepen our faith. The Bible says faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And so, Lord, every, every Wednesday, every Sunday, every day as we get into the Word, that, Lord, you, you would increase our faith. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, as we, um, as we end tonight.